everyone. Welcome back to City Speak. This month, we are so excited to celebrate an exciting milestone, our one-year anniversary of City Speak with Clarence Anthony. It's hard to believe we've been doing this for a full year already, but if you've been listening along with us, you know we've heard some amazing stories from leaders and experts in local government and beyond. We've got this incredible bank of wisdom on local leadership in this podcast. So we wanted to take a moment this summer to take a look back and reflect on some of those really compelling conversations that Clarence has hosted over the last year. And as we were doing that, we realized that one thing kept coming up again and again in every single episode, the stories of why people chose to serve, their journeys to public service, the reasons they considered running for office in the first place. The stories and the paths are different for everyone, but they're exactly what unite all of the guests we've had on the show. So today, we want to dive deep and take a look back on some of those stories, some of the highlights we've heard in the last year. At the National League of Cities, we are unbelievably fortunate to work with such inspiring leaders from all backgrounds every single day, and it's been such a privilege to hear their perspectives on this podcast. So thank you to all of our listeners. We hope you've enjoyed these conversations as much as we have. And whether you're here for the first time or have been with us since the beginning, take a minute to subscribe and to share this podcast with a friend or another local leader you know. And if there's someone you want to hear from, let us know. You can always reach us at cityspeakpodcast at nlc.org. With that, let's get this episode started. Here's to one year of City Speak and to our local leaders' stories of public service. First up, we'll hear from White House Senior Advisor and Infrastructure Coordinator Mitch Landrieu who spoke with Clarence in our inaugural episode about his family's legacy in local government and why being mayor is the hardest job in public service. So let me uh, build on how I opened, talking about, you know, your family and public service. You know, we can say it's in the genes. Uh, We can say it's you saw it and you say that too was for me. But what really got you interested in public service? You know, I'm, I'm one my mom and dad are, you know, still with us today and have been great mentors in my life. And, uh, you know, I can remember from the time that I was a baby that my my mom and dad just doing everything they could to help people. My dad was a lawyer. He did it through politics. He and my mother had nine children in 11 years. I have a bucket load of family. And we have, between us all, we have 38 nieces and nephews. I mean, really, for my brothers and sisters that are involved in government, those that are not, just, you know, my mom and dad's ethos has been help other people, be fair, help out, you know, and uh, and you have an obligation to to lead, not just not just to follow. And so I was able to watch my dad in politics and my mom in her community service. And it was just something I kind of felt like I always wanted to do. So when I got out of law school. Um, you know, I, uh, my wife and I met in law school. We got married. And I just that that's kind of the tact that I felt like best situated me to help other people. Um, and on top of that, I just wanted to have something to say about the rules that people were making that, that, I, that I had to follow. I, it never really sat well with me to let somebody else make the rules and me not have anything to say about it. <laughs> so, you know, um, and as you mentioned that throughout my life, I served 16 years in the state legislature. And then I became the lieutenant governor of the state of Louisiana. And while I was at Katrina hit, you know, we lost 250,000 homes, 1800 people. You know, you have to run to that fire. You can't run away when you called. You just got to go. And uh, that kind of just, you know, was part of of what we learned as as kids. And and it's followed me into my adult life. 
So if you think about that a little bit, you know, public services is a challenge sometimes. I mean, it's not for <laughs> the weak at heart. As you compare the state level, the federal level, how has serving as mayor shaped your view and your role? Because you've, you've done all of them. So now how has it shaped your role? Well, you know, it's interesting. Everything that you learn in your life, whether it's in government, outside of government, trains you for the position that you're in. You know, when I played baseball when I was a little kid, you know, I learned how to work with other people. I was a theater kid. I loved doing shows and it required you to, you know, work with other people um, and, and ensemble cast. When I became a, a lawyer, I learned how to think, you know, critically, uh, take both sides of the argument, see somebody else's side that you completely disagree with. As a matter of fact, having to argue on their behalf, <laughs> even if you disagree with them because of, uh, so that, that helped a lot. But when I, I was uh, on the state, local and federal level, I've now worked on all three, but I've also worked in different branches of all of those. I was a law clerk for the Supreme Court Justice of Louisiana. Um, so I worked, and, and I was also a law clerk for a federal district court judge. So I worked in the judiciary. I had an opportunity to work in the legislative branch on the state level. I had an opportunity to work in the executive branch on the state level. Then I went back and became an executive on the city level. And now, of course, I'm working in the executive branch on the federal level. And so there are a couple of things that I that I learned uh, from that. First of all, being a legislator as opposed to an executive, um, you, you know, your, your job is to advocate. Your job is to really push hard find consensus around a piece of legislation. But most legislators think that once they pass the legislation, the job is over. And that's really what I learned when I was an executive, that that was just the beginning, all right? So then I jump over and I become a lieutenant governor of the state and I become an executive and I, need, I learn how to, how to do stuff on the, on the state level. Then I became an executive on the city level and state and cities are very different. Um, when you're the mayor, as you know this, because you were a mayor, I would have to say that the mayor's job is probably the most complex. It's probably the hardest for a number of different reasons. One, you are where the rubber meets the road. You are the final decision maker and your decisions are very close to the ground. And, and because you're not so high up, you see people every day and they can get to you. You know, if you're a governor, you're a president, you got security surrounding you, you're generally living in a in, in a place that's got a fence around it and you get two people, but it's not quite as immediate. So um, the reverberation is really, really quick and the pitches are fast and the challenges are hard. Um, and when you get up on, on, the, on the executive branch of the federal level, you're 40,000 feet up and you're making policy, but now you've got to get it all the way down to the ground. And what I learned as a, as a mayor um, is, is uh, different from Washington speak there's no Democratic or Republican way to fill a pothole. People just want their stuff done. And so Washington has this way of being ideologically argumentative. I like to tease that some people in Washington like to, like to fight about what time of day it is. <laughs> <laughs> but, but when you're building stuff and you're making stuff happen as a mayor, you got to get to the answer. And it's got to be a common sense answer. It's not that people don't have passion, you know, but you got to get to an answer that works um, in real time. And that brings a certain sense of urgency to your work. And I'm trying to bring that to the federal level. As the president has said, get this money down to the ground quick. I'm trying to break down the silos in Washington, trying to communicate clearly with the governors, making sure the governors are, are talking to the mayors and everybody's getting on the same page 
because everybody for the most part agrees that waiting in traffic is a pain in the neck or running on a bad road or having, you know, crossing uh, unsafe railroad tracks or not being able to get from point A to B because the bridge is broken. Almost everybody in America with all the craziness that we have going on right now can agree that we need to fix our infrastructure. Next up, let's hear about the unlikely path to public service paved by our 2023 NLC president and the mayor of Tacoma, Washington, Victoria Woodards, who spoke with Clarence about what people mean to her when it comes to public service. Just tell me somewhat uh, something about your story of how you got to be uh, in public service and your background. Well, you know, as you talk to mayors or elected officials across the country, you find that we all have a different path that got us to where we are. Um, Some people planned it. Some people inherited it. um, Some people ran into it. um, Some people had no idea like me and just ended up here. Um, But, but for me, um, my story is, is one that probably is fairly common in that um, I just wanted to be of service. I I think if you talk to elected officials across the country, most of us get into this work because we want to make our communities better. And so um, in high school, I worked in community. Um, out of high school, I thought I would go see the world. And I joined the U.S. Army and ended up stationed right back at Fort Lewis, Washington in my own town. And so spent three years in the Army serving my country, but then wanted to get out and thought if I'm going to be at home, I might as well be at home. Um, and got out and went to work in corporate America for a while and then decided I wanted to go back to school because I hadn't gotten my college degree. And it was while I was um, while I was taking colleges that night that I got that phone call that I think changed the trajectory of my life. And that phone call was from one of my church members who said Tom Dixon at the Urban League. Tom Dixon was the founding CEO of the Tacoma Urban League. She said, Tom Dixon's looking for an assistant. And I said, good for Tom Dixon. I'm not looking for a job. <laughs> um, I was going to school at night, living with my mother, you know, living with my parents. It was a great gig working a little bit during the day in my late 20s. Who doesn't want that kind of lifestyle? But, you know, I interviewed with her and uh, I interviewed. I said I'd take the interview and I interviewed with Tom Dixon and the entire board. And um, after four different interviews, I finally accepted the job. And that really is how I formalized my commitment to service and basically how I met most of the people that I either knew, now know, um, or who were leaders in the community before I even came onto the scene. And so that's where I met Harold Moss, um, who later became my father. But Harold Moss was the first African-American city council member mayor and county council member. And I met Harold there and went to go and Harold offered me a job after five years at the Urban League. And I, you know, after a lot of contemplation, took the job. And and that's how I got into policy. And I'll be honest, I never thought even working in policy, I always like being behind the person who was out front, but I never wanted to be the face of the work. Um, I liked being able to call up another office and say, hey, this is Victoria Woodard from Harold Moss's office. You understand? Yeah. You get to use your boss's name, but but you're not necessarily responsible for all the things that an elected official is responsible for. And so um, as Harold retired and people kept talking to me, I thought, well, if I ever want to do anything, maybe a parks commissioner, because in my city um, parks commissioners are elected and sure enough I said that out loud and two days later a position opened up on the park board so I took that as a sign be careful what you say when you put it out there 
God will give it back to you, at least for me or the universe, whatever you call it, will give it back to you. And he did. And I accepted and went on from the park board to the same kind of similar situation happened um, on when I got elected to the city council, when I decided to run. And then the same thing happened for mayor. So here I am um, five years, you know, a year into my second term as mayor. And I am just I never would have envisioned as a young person that this could be my life today, that I could be sitting in the offices of the National League of Cities, this little black girl from Tacoma, and I'm its president. And and I would have never imagined that. But I cannot tell you how humbling and what an honor it is to be able to serve in this way, um, not just for the city of Tacoma, but now for the state of Washington and the United States. And I, I couldn't be more happy. Wow, what a what a great story and and what a great journey. Uh, when you think of leaders that you admire, um, what characteristics do they have, and and has that sort of made you a certain type of leader? Absolutely. I admire a lot of different leaders, but it is those characteristics. There's not one leader that I say has it all, but I will say that Harold Moss, um, to me, embodied what real compassionate leadership looks like. Um, I think... I tease my mom and I say, you and Harold must have had an affair sometime and sometime <laughs> in my life because sometime in your lives, not mine, because I feel like I was cut from the same cloth of him. It isn't necessarily about what you what you say. It's about what you do and how you behave. And and when I met Harold, his love for people um, is the same love I have for people. And people doesn't just mean the owner of the restaurant or the CEO of the company. It's about the janitor or the first person that you meet at the front desk. It's about every relationship. And I watched Harold um, exude that year, day after day, year after year um, when I worked for him. And it was something that I already had in me. And then not just the love of people, but the ability to know that recognizing the greatness in others doesn't take away from the great of yourself. And that is okay. Like I have no problem. I I don't care about credit. I just care about getting a job done. And Harold was the same way. It was all about making sure that those people who were involved in whatever the work was, that they got credit for their part in the work. And I think that gives people confidence to step forward and continue to do the work. And so I think those are two qualities that are really important to me. And that's why in my theme, people, partnerships, and possibilities, the first word is people. Because I believe that it's how we treat people and how we interact with people that can change absolutely anything. Next, we'll hear from one of our really compelling guests, the mayor of Oakland, California, Shane Tao who talked with Clarence about how her own experience with domestic abuse and homelessness informs her policymaking today. What was your journey? Um, You've talked publicly about your background growing up in a big family uh, of Hmong refugees. What got you into public service and part of that journey? Yeah, so so yes, my parents are Hmong refugees. Um, They escaped genocide from the uh, secret war. The secret war was taking place at the same time as the Vietnam War, hence it was a secret no longer. And so it's Hmong people lived in the jungles uh, and the mountains of places like Laos, mainly in Laos, but in Vietnam and China as well. 
Um, we have our own culture, our own different language, but not our own country. And so um, this nomad group uh, were recruited by American CIAs. And so as all this was happening, um, Hmong people who we supported the American troops were seen as traitors. And so um, uh, my parents escaped genocide, went into the Thailand refugee camp and um, came to United States in 1979. And so I don't have a typical story for an elected official in America. Um, it's atypical because, you know, growing up impoverished, living in public housing, you know, uh, after leaving my uh, my parents' home at the age of 17, you know, I got into this really bad domestic violence relationship. It's my very first relationship. And for four years, I suffered uh, abuse, physical and mental abuse, emotional abuse as well, too. And it wasn't until I was pregnant with my son, uh, six months pregnant, and I hope that this is not a triggering part for folks, but, and you can take it out if it's too triggering, but, you know, um, his father grabbed me by the hair. I was on my, on top, I was sitting on my bed. He grabbed me by the hair, pulled me down and, um, from the bed and started kicking me, uh, in my six month pregnant stomach. And in that moment, you know, I have always been very fierce, very feisty. Um, you know, it, I grew up in a very patriarchal household where boys didn't have to do any chores or anything. And the, the uh, girls were being taught how to be good wives through cooking and cleaning. And I refuse to do any cooking or cleaning. Suffice to say, I don't know how to cook today, <laughs> but, <laughs> but, but you, I had that personality yet I was in this situation. And so I left and became homeless because by that time, all of my family and my friends and my, uh, any sort of system, you know, um, uh, relationships that I had with anybody, they were all stricken away. And so I was unhoused for a long time. And then I gave birth, county hospital. I was alone and it was the nurses, uh, nurses before even COVID. I love nurses because uh, they taught me how to bathe my son and how to feed my son. And um, it was pretty rough, you know, it was pretty rough, but that's how I lead. I lead through the lens of live life experience. Uh, your story is very impactful. I mean, uh, there's so many stories like that. And I hope that women who are experiencing um, the same type of um, relationship could hear the story that you can overcome and, um, you know, come out strong, uh, stronger um, from, from those experiences. And so thank you for sharing that. I know that's not easy to relive uh, that story um, and that experience every time. It, it was hard in the beginning, but what I have come to learn is that not only is it healing for me uh, to speak about it, but when I, you know, I, I was 20 years old, right? When I became homeless and uh, I just assumed that I was in a unique position, that this was a choice that I had made, a bad decision that I had personally made and that no one in, you know, that, that this was not happening in multiple families or households, which is far from the truth. And so with that being said, it's important for me to make sure that we get the word out that this is not a unique situation. This happens across racial lines. This happens across social economic statuses and that there are resources. And so I'm a huge advocate of making sure that we bring resources to the community so that anybody, any young person who's feeling like they're alone and that they're in a unique position, that it's not unique at all. And more so than that is that 
you know, being a single mom, I was on welfare. I used uh, government services like Head Start, uh, uh, welfare to work programs, and all of these programs, you know, were the stepping stones on my success. And, you know, because I eventually went to community college, graduated as a single mom working full time at the, at the um, community college graduate valedictorian and transferred over to UC Berkeley. And so for me, I'm always uplifting, you know, um, making sure that people know that for all of, you know, whatever negative stigma that you may feel or society may make you feel using utilizing public resources, it's like the public resources are there for a reason. And, and, and I'm a prime example for that, right? We Sometimes people just need a break and they need support because we're not all set on an equal level playing field. One of our more recent guests with the longest title ever, Acting Deputy Assistant Secretary for Mental Health and Substance Use at the federal agency SAMHSA, Tom Coderre, spoke with Clarence about how his approach to service and his role today is inspired by the support he received as a person in recovery. Which one of those roles were your favorite role, though? (laughs) Uh, The next one, you know, I guess is always my favorite one. The, you know, I think may have had this experience too, Clarence, in, in your professional career. Uh, we, you know, we really love the job we're in. And, you know, I've, I've had so many amazing opportunities, um, but most of them, the ones at least uh, that happened in my personal, after I achieved personal recovery from a substance use disorder, which I think we'll get into a little bit during the conversation today, those have been the most meaningful uh, to me because I've been able to really bring uh, a lot of the previous experiences I had and and blend them uh, with my new life and recovery. Uh, and, and that perspective, I think, has really uh, helped uh, enrich each of those opportunities that I've had. I often say um, I have to pinch myself sometimes to make sure I'm not dreaming because uh, to go from uh, being somebody who had lost everything uh, it, to active addiction and then to have these opportunities to work at the highest levels of government uh, it's truly an honor and a privilege. Man, that, that it is an honor and, and a privilege. And I think that sometimes when you, you meet people and you ask them what is their why in terms of what they are doing and the impact it's going to have on others, that is an interesting uh, question when you pose that question. No, absolutely. And I think people in recovery um, really value story. You know, our there's really power in our stories. And um, each of us have gone through experiences um, and come out the other side and now have these uh, stories that really help point to the why, help point to the passion um, that we have for the work that we do. And I think that's an incredible way to be able to live your life. And what do they say if you're doing something you're passionate about or you enjoy, you never work a day in your life. That is true, uh, but you need to get paid too. So I think <laughs> being able to work makes a difference. Well, no, no. What I'm saying though <laughs> is, if we get paid for the things that we enjoy, right? We never really work truly work a day in our lives. I mean, some people unfortunately dread going to work every day, and, and yeah. I don't have one of those jobs. I uh, get up and I'm ready to tackle my job every day because. Um, I'm getting the opportunity to give other people the same thing that I got 
which is access to maybe to uh, a treatment program, access uh, to a network of people in recovery, access to recovery support services that help them sustain their recovery on a daily basis. Uh, when you are able to share those things with people and watch them grow and flourish the way you grew and flourished, it's really an amazing kind of life coming full circle. Next up, we'll hear from the mayor of Houston, Sylvester Turner, who actually joined our show to talk with Clarence about voting rights, but who couldn't help but share his own journey to public service as well. You look back and see, how did we get started? You know, what, what motivated what motivated us to get involved in this politics? And for me, it was, it was simply the sense that um, uh, I had a brother who needed some um, behavioral mental health care and a mom that was taking care of nine kids by herself who went to the doctor and I would ride along on the bus, you know, with her to take him. And uh, she she, uh, get to the hospital and didn't have a lot of money. And they would just give her some medication. Told her bring, and they would tell her, bring him back when he became a danger to himself or somebody else. And I just said to myself, as a high school student, damn, that's, that's piss poor. And, uh, and said, you know, riding back on the bus, just sitting on the seats. I just said, this, this hell will be poor. And, uh, but literally, it pissed me off. And so I said to myself in high school, if I ever get the chance to change it, I'm going to get in it. You know, go off to law school, come back. And then I heard that um, uh, this county commissioner seat was open, and they had a lot to do with mental health services and decided to run. I didn't win, but that was the motivating influence. And then when it came to state rep, that was another. They have something to do with providing funding for mental health. And I ran and won. That's what, that's what brought me in. So in many cases, you know, young, old, in between, you have to recognize the need or you have to decide what's important to you. And how do you want to effectuate that change and then go? And and that's what I did. I just, I ran. And and I would tell you, ran the first time and got my butt whipped. <laughs> there were seven people running. I was number six. Not too far from being number seven. <laughs> and, uh, but that's what, that's what motivated me to get in it. So, you know, what, what can we do to help motivate you know, that younger generation to come in, uh, I think we just have to keep talking about the issues and letting them know that there's room and inviting them to participate. But at some point in time, um, if an issue or something resonates with you, then you just have to stand, raise your hand up and volunteer and come forward. Otherwise, you're going to get what people give you. Next up, let's hear from the mayor of Duluth, Minnesota, Emily Larson, who realized that when she thought about the perfect council candidate for her community, she was describing herself. She and Clarence spoke about how her background in social work led her to her position as mayor today. When I look back, I really realized that part of the lessons of that, of my childhood, was that you 
are here to participate in this life and in this world and in this democracy. And so I realized how much that was instilled in me. So when I went to college, it was on a college scholarship. I chose social work, like you said, or mentioned and spent, you know, probably 12 years doing very direct work with people and working primarily with people with low and no income uh, families, a lot of histories of chemical use and, um, you know, criminal justice, mental health, but incredible, like incredible, Clarence, these stories of survival and resilience and courage and determination. And so it was really those stories that people were willing to share with me about their life. Um, and the more you listen to people, the more that we literally stop and just listen to the people around us. Um, you really tune into what people hope and what they dream and what they love. And it is the same. It is the same. Um, and so this idea that, you know, we have some shared humanity and some interconnection. I did a lot of direct service work, then went back to school to get my master's degree to do more policy and bigger picture work and to get more to the root cause of why were people coming into this service, this shelter um, the foster care system, less about how do I help you today with those needs, more about how do we take a step back and try to prevent those needs from happening. So when I look back, a lot of it was a normal progression. I was working on campaigns. I was spending time, um, you know, supporting campaigns around marriage equality, around other things here, supporting candidates. And so again, that natural progression I became a campaign volunteer. I became a campaign manager. When I saw a seat on city council open up in my community, I was actually recruiting other candidates to run. And I was offering to be their campaign manager because I love managing. And, you know, it's it's not as risky, right, as being the candidate. And so I was I was seeking other people to run and was talking with my husband at home about it. And I was saying, I've had all these conversations and I can't get anyone to run. And I remember so clearly he was uh, cooking something probably wonderful at the stove and he's stirring it. He's like, okay, tell me again, Emily, tell me again, what are you looking for? And I, I'm, I'm like, okay, a woman. And cause I started listening. Here's what we don't have, right? Here's, here's what I'm not seeing in our city council. You know, a woman with, with young children who is progressive, owns a business, understands, you know, has school, has kids in the public school system. You know, I'm kind of listing all these things and he's, you know, he kind of turns the burner off and he sets the spoon down and he turns around and he says, you're kidding. Like, Emily, this is what we talk about all the time. You know, we had, we had two kids, like we actively tell them, you don't wait around for people to do the right thing. You got to step in and do the right thing. So it's a, it a really fun story because it was really that origin story is about my family. It's about being a parent. It's about my marriage. It's about my community. And from that moment on, uh, you know, we have just been into the policymaking realm. And so, right, four years as a counselor. And then when I saw and knew that there would be a seat for mayor, I really thought about it. and decided that I would run and I would run and I would talk about people's stories and I would talk about the issues and I would talk about what's hard. And I was coached repeatedly. No one wants to hear about that. Nobody wants to talk about 
race inequality. Nobody wants to talk about achievement gaps. Nobody wants to talk about neighborhoods that are hurting. Stay focused on, you know, these very linear. And I thought, I don't, I don't think that's right. And if I lose by talking about what matters, I'm cool with that. And you know what? I, I, I won with 72% of the vote. So I think what that tells me isn't, is that when we talk about what matters, when we mirror the truth of what's happening in our communities, residents see that, they feel that, they know that, they go there with you. Next, let's hear from a close friend of ours at NLC. In fact, he's one of our very own past presidents. Mayor Vince Williams of Union City, Georgia, spoke with Clarence about what it means to him to fulfill the promise of America's cities, towns, and villages. What have you learned about local government that you didn't know, that you like, I'm going to run for office and I'm going to change this, I'm going to change that, and then you got in the role and you and found, found that you couldn't change this and correct. you can't change that. Yeah. <laughs> That's the eye opener for, for brand new entrants into the local government space. You have this thing in your heart and your mind. Look, I am going to be the superhero for this community and I'm going to do this and do that. And you find out, you know, there are, there are laws and ordinances in place that keep you from doing those things you think you can do. But what you got to do is really get in there, learn the local government. Uh, first, learn your charter. Know what the charter says. You know, that's that's first and foremost. Then start building relationships. One of the things that I was uh, key in, in, in doing and uh, I think it's vitally important is, you know, first you got to build a relationship with your council colleagues. But beyond that, you got to make sure you build relationships with, you know, those other members of local government, the other cities and also your, your county officials as well. And beyond that, the state and what the National League of Cities has been so beneficial to me and my city is building those relationships with federal leaders, not just my my delegation, but federal leaders from across the country. Because one of the things we must understand, we can't do anything that we want to do alone. And when you think about what we do, uh, especially when you talk about infrastructure, broadband, you know, all of those types of things, and God forbid another COVID you know, incident takes place. If you don't have relationships, you know, it it is going to leave you at the back of the line, you know. So uh, I think making sure that you develop and cultivate those relationships, it's not about party, it's not about race, it's not about gender. It's about what can we do collectively for the people that we serve. Finally, let's hear from someone we had the chance to speak with live at our Congressional City Conference back in March. The former mayor of Columbia, South Carolina, and now a senior advisor to the president and White House director of the Office of Public Engagement, Steve Benjamin spoke with Clarence about what good public service looks like at all levels of government. We are at a point in our history where it seems like we spend a lot more time shouting at each other as opposed to dialoguing. And listening to each other, I want to encourage you that as you step back into your chambers and your city halls, uh, your your town council meetings, encourage you to um, to take some time 
and determine if someone that some that someone equally yoked can see the same issues you and see it very differently, and spend some time figuring out if you can solve of these ten priorities the three things that you agree on or the four things that you agree on, and show the public that our system of government still works. It will pay dividends for years to come. On, on all the other issues, we, we live in a democracy, majority rules, in a, in a mature democracy. You enforce the will of the majority and you, and you protect the rights of the minority. That's where we're supposed to do things. But it takes some time, it takes some real leadership to try and solve the issues that we can agree on together. And if we do it, then we'll watch this great experiment, I think, um, continue to blossom uh, for the next 250 years. And I will tell you, I have to figure out how to challenge my stick. I've always been, you know, uh, you know leadership doesn't come from Washington and comes to Washington. Well, now I work in Washington for the ball. <laughs> so I, 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 got, I, need, I need a new line. If someone has some ideas, y'all, y'all smudgy, throw me something. Throw me a bone. I need something. Um, so, um, but I do believe firmly that um, local leadership is where, is where it's at. Uh, you, you, you drive this experiment. You drive the ideas. Uh, the money comes from a local government. We, so we, we, we're going to need you now more than ever. I want to ask you a question and follow up on that. Uh, topic. You made a decision. You ran for office, 11 years of service. Uh, you didn't, you went out into private sector. And now you're coming back into yeah. public service. What drove you to make that decision when you were asked to take on this role, to take on the role? That's a trick question because we talked about it ten times as I was trying to make the decision. I told like, you like, I was going to ask like, a question. Like, we, 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 you try to pretend to be professional colleagues. Colleagues, uh, Clarence is one of my, my dearest uh, friends and a mentor. And when I have tough decisions, I, I, I often uh, confide in him. And, and we worked through this together. It was a tough call. I was very happy in the private sector. My wife was very happy with me in the private sector. <laughs> uh, uh, and... Um, but I, I, I live in Columbia, South Carolina. We've been blessed beyond measure. My, my parents are still with me. I have two awesome in-laws. DeAndre and I um, have two amazing girls that we're raising together. Um, but I grew up in South, South Side, Jamaica, Queens. Uh, uh, and two out here, one Queens over here. Um, and, and I know this amazingly blessed journey that I've been on. And I never, ever thought that I'd have an opportunity to serve this country that's, that's given me an opportunity to live up to my God-given potential at this, in this way, at this level. And I knew at the end of the day, it wasn't, you know, if, it was how. And, uh, and I'm, I hope and pray that, you know, when the final chapter is written, uh, that our, 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 sacrifice, our personal sacrifice and our time, talent, and treasures being given in this way at this time will make a difference for a whole lot of children who grew up the way that I did, similarly situated. That's our goal. Thanks for listening to City Speak with Clarence Anthony. If you like the show, let us know. Share this episode with your friends and make sure to subscribe. We're curious to hear what you think, what you want more of, and how we can improve. If you have feedback or an idea for a guest you'd like Clarence to sit down with, Send us your thoughts at citiespeakpodcast at nlc.org. Join us next month for a new episode. Like and subscribe here or wherever you get your podcasts. See you next time.